Are you going now? Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, let's turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1. I can preach this message um, short amount of time. I know that you can get it because the Holy Spirit is the ultimate teacher. It's good to see my friend Paul Revere, Carolyn, love you guys so much. See David back there. Hey, Dave, what's happening, my brother? You all right? Good. Good to see you, man. Amen. Good to be in the house of the Lord today. Amen. God's up to some great stuff. If you're visiting with us, we are in a series on sound doctrine because it is incumbent upon the church to know what it believes and why we believe it. We don't want to be guilty of parroting things that we've heard, but they're not things that have become conviction, things that we not only hold, but they hold us. So we're taking our time, and we're just going to deal with several key doctrines of the Christian faith um, for the next couple of months, few months. We're just going to walk through various doctrines, various teachings. And so we've started off with bibliology, which is the study of the Bible. And so today we're going to jump into one of the key passages that deals with inspiration. As my good friend Dr. Sims said earlier, even inerrancy. So we're going to try to break these things down. Pastor Darrell will have a good word for us next week because I and a few of us will be in Haiti next week. And we'll tell you about that at the close of service. But, uh, man, I'm enjoying this, and I hope that you're enjoying it as well. So let's pray. Father God, would you take these truths, these precious promises, and encourage all of our hearts, starting first and foremost with me. Thank you, Lord, for the things that you began to reveal to me this week through inductive Bible study. Thank you, Lord. I can't wait to share the glories of your word. So, Holy Spirit, would you help me to present it? Would you help your people to hear it? And would you help all of us apply it? For it's in Jesus' name, the church will rise up and be salt and light. Amen. This past week, when I heard about another beheading that happened in Baghdad of Christians, of non-Muslims who are being beheaded, not only did it break my heart and cause me to pray, but I, I said, I'm going to watch one of these videos. And that was the first time I saw an actual beheading where there were Christians. And, of course, we know journalists are being killed, um, and they're making a mockery of these people because there's a pattern that when the United States hits ISIS, ISIS will return by having decapitations. And so there's a pattern that's been going on since August now. And uh, as I was watching this last one here, my first time ever seeing anything like this, where they literally used a knife, not a sword, and sawed two people's heads off. Then lifted up the head to the cheers of the crowd that had children in it. Then they set the head on top of the body. And uh, it, just, it just paralyzed me for a moment, that, that kind of evil looming in the world. 
And as I began to think about that, um, it made me pray for those who are still held hostage right now. I think over 20 hostages are still uh, at the hands of ISIS that they're going to bring out at various times. And it made me wonder, what would it be like if one of those people were me? Because I noticed that as the people sat there, and even the pictures you've seen of these journalists dressed in the orange jumpsuits, and they're standing, or they're kneeling, and someone who's robed in black standing next to them, the, the, the people look calm, relatively calm. And even in the video that I watched, it was a mob scene, but the two people who would be executed were very calm. And so I said, Lord, how would I be? And then I started thinking, there's a strong chance that these folks know you. And maybe you're giving them truly a peace that surpasses understanding. That the Holy Spirit is taking over in that moment of just darkness and chaos. And he's bringing order and serenity and calmness to those who are about to be killed. That God is allowing for whatever reason, ultimately for his glory. And I began to think about the scriptures. When Stephen was stoned for preaching the gospel to his people, the Jews, and he walked them from the time of Abraham all the way up to the time of Christ. And the word of God cut them to their heart. And the thing about the Bible is that when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, it cut their heart to repent. And they said, what must we do to be saved? But then in Acts chapter 8, when the word cut the people's heart, they responded by rebelling. They didn't repent, they rebelled. And you can't tell what's going to happen with the crowd or the person you share the gospel with. Some will repent, some will rebel. And in Stephen's case, they rebelled and they began to stone him. But here's my God who's very present in a time of trouble. The Bible says that he opened up his eyes and heaven was open. And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father. So as he was dying, God gave him a vision of glory. God gave him a vision of glory because it was Paul who said in Romans 8.18, he said that the sufferings of this present age, they are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed unto us. So God gives visions of glory to help Stephen and maybe even others who are suffering immensely at the hands of those who are committing evil atrocities. To help bear the pain, God gives them a glimpse of glory because earth knows no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. Just one glimpse of Jesus makes it all right. And so perhaps the Lord is giving people a glimpse of glory before they even get there to help them deal with the pain that they're going through. You visited your relatives in the hospital, especially if you got a big mama in your family or an older saint in your family, and they'll tell you they can see angels in the room. They have this calmness about them where some of them will even tell you, stop praying for me to be healed. I'm ready to go. Because they're not living for this life. They know that they're ultimately living for the life to come, and there's something calming about going to glory. So I just want to say, because the kingdom of God is upside down, it just doesn't make sense that God can say in Psalm 116, precious in his sight is the death of his saints. 
lives are precious, especially when saints may be martyred. Well, when I flip over to Revelation, I see that there are many who had been martyred because they had come to Christ by the sword, possibly even alluding to decapitation. And they're under the altar, thousands of people. And they say to the Lord, is it now the time that you're going to go and avenge us? And the Lord says, not yet, not yet. Pastor, what's all that mean? Here's the idea. People who are suffering need to hear about glory. People who are hurting, people who are about to die, they need to get a vision of glory. And that's why when Peter wrote 1st and 2nd Peter, he was writing to people who were suffering, people who were persecuted, people who were being killed for their faith. And so to encourage them, he kept talking about the return of Jesus, the return of Jesus, that he is coming, that he will rescue you, and that where you're going, you're receiving an inheritance that will never, ever fade away because you have not been redeemed with corruptible things like gold and silver, but you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, and there is an inheritance waiting on you. You see, sometime around AD 64, AD 65, Nero, the emperor, satanically influenced, if not possessed, burned down Rome. He burned Rome because he wanted to rebuild it and put up many pieces of architecture after his name because other emperors who claimed to be God, they would build and have statues and monuments all over the place. And so he thought that he was the greatest of all. So his idea was not only to burn the place down, to build it back up, but he blamed it on Christians. And so Christians then became the target of the empire, where Christians were thrown to lions and burned at the stake, dipped in oil and lit, a fi lit, lit by fire and placed on poles as human torches. And so when Peter's writing to the Christians, the diaspora, he's telling them not to think it's strange of the fiery trial that's trying you, as if something strange would happen. No, no, this is part of what it means to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ because it has been granted unto us not just to believe but also to suffer. Something that our nation doesn't really know a whole lot about but the days of comfort and ease that tide is turning. As Ebola makes its way here, as terrorists are continuing to plot yes we need to deal with these things and yes we need our politicians and our those in armed forces to deal. But we also need the church to preach about the glories of God. To give us strength to make it through the valley of the shadow of death. Because I know I'm not going to stay in this valley. So as Peter's writing, he wants the people to know that Christ is coming back again. And every set of believers throughout the generations, they all believe Jesus will return in their lifetime. I don't know about you, but I believe he's going to return while I'm alive. And can I get an amen? Is there anybody else with me on my by myself? I believe I'm going to see him from, I believe I'm going to be raptured up. I don't know what your eschatology is. We'll get to that in a few months. But I believe I'm going up. I believe I'm going to meet him in the air. But guess what? Paul believed that. Peter believed that. John believed, everybody throughout the ages believed that Christ could come at any time. They wanted him to come. And any true child of God wants the Lord to return 
The spirit in them is beckoning. Return, Lord. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We want to see the lover of our souls. And so Peter's trying to encourage uh, his congregants and those who will receive his letter. He's coming. It's called the parousia in the Greek, the coming of our great Lord. He's coming. Be encouraged even though you're suffering. He's coming. But guess what? Second Peter chapter 3 said that there were people mocking their king. He's not coming back. And these were some of the so-called Christians in the church who were mocking the return of Christ. Why? Because they had turned away from sound doctrine and they got into fables. They started talking about Greek and Roman mythology. And so the church was now full up with stories and fables and concoctions of man to try to explain the troubles of life. Rather than looking to God and his word, the mockers and the scoffers came. Yeah, he's not coming back. Ha, the second return. Ha, yeah, right. So Peter said, uh, I got to set the record straight here. So look with me in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. And I'm reading from the New King James, and Peter says, For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. Stop and pause. Earlier in the chapter, he talked about the great and precious promises that God has given us. So he wants to remind the Christians about the precious promises of God. Later on, he talks about how we need to add to our faith virtue and knowledge and self-control and on and on that when a person has these aspects that they are growing in their faith and so he wants to remind them of what God has said and what God has called them to be about so he says I, I got to remind you of these things that are about the kingdom he says though you know and are established in the present truth verse 13 yes I think it's right as long as I am in this tent or in this body to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Stop. Remember in John 21, when Jesus came to restore Peter after he had denied the Lord three times? Jesus came and affirmed him three times. And then he said to Peter, I need you to feed my sheep. I need you to tend my lambs. Your ministry is not over. It's just beginning. You know how when you fail God, you feel like it's over. No, but our God is full of grace. Grace superbounds over our sin. He said, Peter, I'm not done with you. You were fishing for men. That ain't going to change. But now I need you to feed some sheep, tend to my flocks, man. We got work to do. But then he went on to say to Peter, he says, now, Peter, when you were younger, you went wherever you wanted to go. But when you're older, people are going to take you where you don't want to go. They're going to dress you. And John wrote a parenthetical comment and said, Jesus basically prophesied that Peter would die a violent death, meaning that he would be crucified. And that's what tradition says, that Peter was crucified in Rome. But being our spontaneous brother that he is, you know, Pete was just so spontaneous. His last request was, do not crucify me right side up like Jesus. I'm not worthy. Crucify me upside down. Pete went out spontaneous. And Jesus said, follow me. Even though you're going to suffer death by crucifixion, follow me. And at that time, in John 21, Peter struggled with that word. He's like, oh, wait a minute, hold on. What about John? I know you got that word for me, but what about him? And, and, and forget the prophecies that people always want to give you something positive. 
Oh, I see abundance in your life. Thank you. How about suffering? Jesus prophesied not only suffering, but a cruel death. Why? Because Jesus knows something about glory. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of men the things that God has prepared for those who love him. The reason why he can allow such violent deaths of his people, John the Baptist being decapitated, because Jesus knows where they're going far outweighs where they have been. And so he tells them, hey, you're going to die. And so he struggled when he first heard that. But later we see, because you know how when you get a word at first, it's like, oh, no, I ain't trying to hear that. Get back with my husband. Get back with my wife. Adopt those children. Tithe. Go to that church. What? So we struggle when God speaks. But, but a little bit later, though, we're able to humbly receive the word that's been implanted. And so later on, Peter's like, Jesus told me I'm going to put my tent off. And matter of fact, I'm about ready to put my tent off because I believe my race is coming to an end. I think he let some of them old saints know, you in the last lap. And them saints be like, yes, Lord, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. I'm re Stop praying to keep me here. I'm ready to go. So he says in verse 15, moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my departure. What things? About the precious promises from the Old Testament, about what it means to be a growing disciple, growing in the kingdom. I'm going to ensure that you have a reminder. How's he going to do that? Through scripture. He's going to ensure that they have a constant reminder because later in chapter 3 of 2 Peter, he talks about Old Testament scripture and how Paul was writing writings that were equivalent to Old Testament scripture. Paul, being an apostle, was authorized by God to write scripture. Peter also had that authority. So he's saying, I'm going to remind you of these things by giving you a written record of the things of God. So now in verse 16, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables. When we made known to you the power and coming, the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even though the mockers say he's not coming. No, no, no. We told you. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, which also qualified them to be writers of scripture because as apostles, they were with Jesus. They're qualified. Verse 17, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we, and he, he's like, I'm a, I'm a witness. It was me, James, and John. We heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's making a point. I'm going to try to make Peter's point today. But in order to get Peter's point, we got to go back to Matthew chapter 16. So it's going to be on the screen, but if you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 16, let's go back because Peter is referring to a historical occurrence to help support the point that he is about to make. He starts telling a story. He's like, I'm not talking about fables here. Or even something I heard that's true. No, I was there. I was there. Look at Matthew chapter 16, the last verse, verse 28. Oh, man, I said 1210, but I don't know. Assuredly, that doesn't make me a false teacher. But assuredly, I say to you, 
There are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So this is what Jesus said. I'm going to give you a glimpse of the future, of, of, of the Son of God coming in his kingdom. So chapter 17, verse 1. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And Christy, I think we saw this mountain while we were over in Israel. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered, here's my boy. He said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. So going back over to first, Second Peter chapter 1. That's the story that Peter is alluding to in Second Peter 1 where Jesus gives three men in particular a glimpse of the future kingdom or the second coming of Christ. He came first as a lamb in his first coming. He is coming back again as a lion in his second coming. So he gave them a glimpse. And while they were up on this mountain and Jesus is transformed in front of them, because when Jesus came into the earth, his glory was veiled with human skin. He voluntarily chose to allow the full display of his glory to be wrapped up in human flesh. So on this day, it was as if he just let his glory breathe for a moment so they could see that he is light, that he is pure, that he is holy, that he is God. He is amazing. He is glorious. He just wanted them to see what everybody's going to see later. He gave them a preview or a clip of coming attraction. This is how it's going to be, me on this mountain in glory. Elijah and Moses show up. Why are they there? They represent the law and the prophets. Moses the prophets, Elijah, Moses the law, Elijah the prophets. They're talking to him. So when Peter rises up and says, let's make three tabernacles as if three of these dudes are equal, Elijah, Moses, and Jesus, no, these three brothers are not equal. They're not on the same plane. They are there to point to him. Because he is God's son. He is the son of God. And the testimony of prophecy speaks to Jesus Christ. So Moses wrote about Jesus. Elijah and the prophets wrote about Jesus. That's why the father says, this is my son. No other person is on his plane. Listen to him. Shut up, Peter. He is an exclusive place of supremacy here. Don't you dare try to lower him on this level of other men. Great men, but men. This is my son. And so Jesus says, now don't tell anybody what you saw. Why? Because right now he had to suffer and die. But Jesus said, when I've resurrected, then you can tell the story. Why? 
Because the people need to know, not only am I alive, but I am coming back again. So let them know what you got a glimpse of on that mountain to encourage those who are suffering. Don't tell them before I get crucified because you're going to confuse them. Let me get crucified and rise, then tell the story that he is going to reign. Why? He's the fulfillment of everything Daniel talked about in Daniel chapter 7. The one who approached the ancient of days and on and on and on. Oh, so back in 2 Peter chapter 1, I love this. Here we go. Verse 19, Peter says, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed. Oh, man, here it is. In the Old Testament, it was prophesied that the Son of Man would, Job 19.25, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, he will stand on the earth. Job did not know what he was talking about when he gave that prophetic word, but thank God it was recorded. And so that spoke of Jesus' second coming in his return, when he will stand on the earth and the Mount of Olives will be split into two, according to Zechariah. But then there's also, uh, and there are many Old Testament scriptures that speak of the second coming of Jesus. But Peter said, we've got that word confirmed. What Job talked about, what Isaiah talked about. Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. Where Isaiah, who was speaking prophetically about the Messiah, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and on and on and on. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Remember when Jesus was in the uh, synagogue at the inauguration of his ministry, that scroll was handed to him from Isaiah 61. He reads that scroll and he stops in the middle of verse 1 and he's on verse 2 and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Where did he stop? Where it read that this is the acceptable year of the Lord's favor. He stopped right there because in the first coming of Christ, It was a time of favor to save us from our sin. But the rest of that scroll or that passage from Isaiah talks about that this same Messiah would also bring a day of vengeance. Jesus is like, that's going to happen later, but not right now. While I'm here, I'm here as a lamb right now. So there was a prophecy from Isaiah that the Lamb of God would come and he would tread the winepress of the fury of God. And blood would be spattered on his garments because Christ will return as a conquering king. What does all that mean? Peter said all those prophecies that we really didn't understand, that Job didn't even understand, that Isaiah didn't understand. But after I saw what I saw and heard what I heard, that word is confirmed now. It's true. It's true. Which means if you can trust that word. You can trust anything else in the word and what is being written right now by apostles. You can trust the word over these fables that are floating around. Oh, you got to hang with me right now. And so we have the prophetic word. It's confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. What does that mean? The day dawns. That's the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus. Heed the Bible. Heed the instructions of God until the Lord returns, until the morning star. Who is that? Jesus said he is the morning star. Till he rises in your hearts. That's uh, poetic language to say when he returns and your faith becomes sight. In other words, walk with the Lord until he returns. And that's why he says, knowing this first, verse 20. 
that no prophecy of Scripture, remember those were prophecies, is of any private interpretation. Let me stop right there. A footnote in the New King James breaks down this word a little differently than how it was originally translated into the English from the Greek. Rather than reading interpretation, it might be better now, based on what we understand about the Greek language, it may be better read, no prophecy of Scripture is of any private origin. Meaning that these guys did not just concoct something in and of themselves. It didn't begin with them. Oh, hang on now. Verse 21, for prophecy never came by the will of man. There it is. It wasn't Job who came up with, I know that my Redeemer lives. It wasn't Isaiah who gave us those messianic prophecies or Haggai or Hosea. No, no, for prophecy never came by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So they're speaking things that did not come and originate within them. It came from the Holy Spirit. And that word moved, we see it used in Luke's writing in the book of Acts, speaking of a ship that's being moved on the sea. The ship is being led by the sea. And so these men were led by the Spirit as a ship is led by the sea. And so they didn't come up with this stuff on their own about the first coming or the second coming of Jesus. But they were moved so that what they spoke was of God. And thus, what was then written down after what they spoke was of God. So we have this prophecy of Scripture. We have a sure word. And you can depend on it. You can bank on it. So here's the main point. We can trust the prophecy of Scripture, which is the Bible, because God, the Holy Spirit, wrote it. Holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit so that what they spoke and what was written down about what they spoke or what they wrote, it is the word of God and not an invention of man. So God wrote the Bible, but somehow man keeps getting the credit for it. Some people will say, man, I'm not reading the Bible because man wrote that. Well, on one hand, that's true, but that's not completely true. God wrote the Bible, but somehow we keep saying Peter wrote that, or Paul wrote that, or Matthew wrote that. Technically, no. I had to call a couple of our musicians this week. And I said, guys, can, can, can you tell me what a ghost writer is? And so the musicians got back with me, and they said, Pastor, a ghost writer is someone who is behind the scenes. There is an agreement that they're going to either write the speech for the president, write the book for the vice president, write the song for Will Smith, thank you Nas and Jay-Z. They are ghost writers who agree on a fee, but they don't get credit in terms of in the liner. They don't get extended royalties, but they write for the person that's out front. So when the president gives the speech, you think he wrote it, but technically somebody you've never seen wrote it. When somebody puts together someone's memoirs and, and, and this book comes out, technically that person on the cover didn't write it. A ghost writer wrote it. And then there's a song that you love, man, but your artist may not have written that song. Somebody else may have written. They're the ghost writer. You don't see them, but technically they're the author of the composition. So who wrote 
Genesis. Well, Moses gets the credit. His face is on the album, but technically the Holy Ghost wrote Genesis. Who wrote the Gospel of Matthew? People say Matthew wrote it, but technically the Holy Ghost wrote Matthew. And that's with every book of the Bible, the Holy Ghost is the writer. And he uses men in the process. Oh, watch this now. What a great God. He could have just dropped the word off, but he didn't do that. He included men in the process. And he used men in such a way where their own personalities, their own vocabulary, their own style of writing did not contaminate nor pollute the message that God was giving. Proverbs 30, every word of God is flawless, but he worked with flawed people to present the word. It's a miracle. But Peter wants you all to know the ultimate author of Scripture is the Holy Spirit, the ghost writer, the Holy Ghost writer. We assisted. We came alongside. He chose us to write and speak his word. So God and my man combined to create something sublime without error in the original autographs. Who wrote the Bible? The Holy Ghost wrote the Bible. But he used men in the process. With their, because when I read John, John doesn't read like Peter. When I read Peter, he doesn't read like Paul. Why? Because God used their individual personalities and circumstances and all of that. But yet he gave us his word. It's a mystery. But guess what, y'all? If you are struggling with this concept, I need to let you know we've seen it before. If you're struggling with how do we get a perfect book from a perfect God, but Imperfect people participating in the process. It's called superintending. And we've seen it before. And when the preacher closes his Bible, that's good. I mean, all right, we're about to go. But we got to get this good doctrine. We've seen this before. Not only with the written word, but with the living word, Jesus Christ. Where God wanted to communicate his love to man. His perfect love. So what he decided to do was he sent his son Jesus into the world to save sinners. But everybody knows that Jesus Christ was sinless, yet he was human. How did that happen? Well, the Holy Spirit superintendent came over, overshadowed Mary, so that the Son of God could be born to a fallen, flawed human vessel without the aid of an earthly father. No, we don't need Joseph in this. So God, the Holy Spirit, came upon Mary so that, as Luke said, what was conceived in her was the Holy One of God. Great is the mystery of godliness. That this woman who's a sinner, who needs a Savior herself, could give birth to the perfect, flawless, sinless Son of God. So that when you looked at Jesus, you not only saw God, but you saw man. 100% two natures without any kind of contradiction. It's called the hypostatic union, but you might as well just say miraculous. How he could be a man. He could weep at the tomb of Lazarus as a man. Jesus wept. But as God, he could say, Lazarus, get up out of there. As a man, he could be hungry. But as God, he could feed the hungry. It's how God and man. That is the living word. The written word. When you hold it, just like when they said about Jesus, we looked on him, we handled him. He's the word of life. 
and you hold this book, you know this book is different than any other book. It, it, yes, it's human. It touches you. It reaches you. You can identify with the stuff that David's going through, that Ruth is going through. But when you read it, it pierces your soul like no other book. So don't you tell me Shakespeare is inspired. Oh, not to the level of this inspiration. This book is supernatural. It cuts you. It talks to you. It encourages you. Why? Because it's the word of God. But we won't read it. We won't meditate on it. We'll let the stress and all this stuff get to us. And that stuff has a louder voice than the voice of God. The people around the world who are being persecuted will give their left arm literally to get just a copy of the gospel of John. Forget the whole Bible. Just give me some of the Bible. In China, Christians are being persecuted if they get this word. But they don't care. They believe that this is the breath of God. That is supernatural. That is powerful. We not take for granted what God not only gave us, but what he preserved for us. Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away before one jot or tittle from this word pass away. Heaven and earth will pass, but this word will not. So let's all make a greater commitment to believe this word, that it's the word of God and not the word of man, even though he used men. In the process. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Mm. Good old basic sound doctrine. To teach us and to remind us of what we have. Thank you for these precious promises. That the Son of God would not only come the first time and lay his life down, but he is coming again to reign and to rule. And we have that word confirmed. Thank you for eyewitnesses like Peter. Thank you, Lord God, for the Bible. Thank you that when we read it, we see your glory. We love you. Forgive us of taking this book for granted. But every time we open it, we have an encounter with the living God. Forgive us, Lord, for getting mundane and bogged down and tired and rote memory and just going on. Lord, this word is living and active because it comes from you, and you are still speaking. We thank you for people who give us words of prophecy. We know it has its place. But above all, most importantly, we come to the written prophecy. Oh, my God. Thank you for this church, Strong Tower Bible Church. May we never, ever apologize for truth. May we stand. In a world that is falling to falsehood every day, may we stand and stand on the promises of God. In Jesus' name, amen.